Lifestyle Matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, and my co-host here filling in for Dave Popovich, Rob Gary. Rob, how are you doing? Good, good, Faisal. Good to be here. I'm excited to having this guest on the show because when we talk about what's happening in the world, one of the sources that we use, one of the biggest money managers in the world with the depth and breadth of understanding what truly is happening. When you live in a city like Calgary, in a province like Alberta, in a country like Canada, you sometimes don't get to see the full scope of everything. But this team and this individual gets to see the full scope. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So let's figure out what's happening globally from an economic perspective. Where is uh, inflation heading? What are their What's their take on what's going on in the world? Let me introduce to you. Tony Crescenzi, Executive Vice President, Market Strategist, and General Portfolio Generalist Portfolio Manager at PIMCO. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Faisal. Thanks, Rob. Great to be with you. Okay, so let's kick it off really quickly on Canada, because I know Canada, I always tell our clients and our viewers, Canada is a rounding error in the economics of the world. Most people don't really look at Canada as the big player. Our friends down south in the U.S., of course, is a big player. And there are other regions around the world that we should be focusing on to see where the economics flow. So just really quickly, give your take on what you see happening in Canada, and then we can kind of dig into the, the meat and potatoes of everything else in the world. Sure, Faisal. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, many of us here in the States will be looked at uh, by many in Canada as having very little knowledge about Canada, but we have... Uh, a large presence there, uh, and including in Toronto, uh, where I'll be visiting in a couple of weeks. And I was uh, there just recently, um, and I've been there many times and, and love going there. Uh, the key differentiation between Canada and the United States probably is in the household debt sphere. Uh, I know this personally, uh, that many uh, individuals like myself are locked into mortgages for an average period of around 30 years. And as, as you might understand, the average period in Canada is a lot shorter, uh, making individuals and households uh, more susceptible to, to interest rate increases by the central bank. So it's a key pressure point in Canada that does not exist in the United States, where over 90% of households have mortgages with very long durations and therefore uh, are locked into low interest, interest rates. There's a on the sidebar of negative connotation to that, making it difficult for individuals to move around the United States, which that lack of mobility can hurt proficiency, efficiency in the future. But um, for now, it's a lower stress point in the United States relative to Canada and uh, other parts of the world. So that's one key uh, uh, part of the story, increasing amounts of pressure on the Canadian household due to rising uh, interest rates on the mortgage mortgages and um, probably will affect uh, the level of GDP growth going forward. I guess the one thing, uh, Tony, that, that I'd like to ask is, you know, we just got some CPI numbers out of Canada this week and a decision next week, which will probably be mute at this point. Um, you know, do you see Canada moving rates before the U.S. as we start to talk about decreases? We generally think that uh, Canada, like many other parts of the world, will probably follow the Fed, um, maybe perhaps concomitant with the Fed, uh, not much difference, uh, both uh, for the United States and Canada. Markets think the, the central banks will buy about a point and a half in the year ahead. We think perhaps a little bit less than that, uh, even less perhaps in the United States relative to the market expectation. But um, the general uh, 
a view that we would have on uh, for investors regarding uh, the pricing for central bank rate cuts is to be cautious because we just went through, a, a, of course, we all know, a very bad uh, episode of inflation. And the history is, uh, the key lesson is to keep at it. Uh, central banks that did not keep at it in terms of uh, reaching inflation objectives and price stability, they failed and inflation was reignited. So I think central banks will move cautiously. And so for Canada, uh, it'll want to be cautious about moving, even if it's seeing these stresses that we talked about, uh, simply because of the, the, the credibility idea uh, and the, the risk that uh, inflation expectations will go higher again, because they can, because it's fresh in our memories that inflation was high. Tony, when you look at um, with interest rates on the horizon going down, so we pretty much are all in agreement that we've peaked on interest rates. There's very low probability of rate hikes happening unless something reverses. That being said, we're on the rate cut methodology, at least for uh, quite a few countries around the world. That being said, how does that impact a fixed income portfolio? And the reason why I'm asking this question is because today, a lot of Canadians have a choice of going into guaranteed investment certificates, better known as CDs in the US. They've got cash paying or high interest savings accounts in Canada paying in the 4.5% range. So you, you've got money that's making pretty decent interest rates or higher than they've seen in a very long time. Why take the risk of the bond market? So when you start hearing the words interest rate cuts, for an investor to tend to say, I'm willing to go in the bond market, what's the risk or benefits as we get through that kind of phase? Well, uh, the history is clear on this, um, and I'll reference some data uh, to back it up, uh, that uh, now would be a good time to be thinking about total return. Uh, PIMCO engineered the idea of total return philosophy many decades ago, where a bond investor would be thinking about not just the yield, but the total return. So it's the yield plus price change. The yield plus price change wasn't very good, of course, in 2022. Price change was down because interest rates rose. But if faced with the idea uh, and the possibility of interest rate cuts by a central bank, the likelihood is that bond prices will rise. So the history is dating back to 1978 for the so-called Bloomberg aggregate, which is sort of like the S&P 500 of the bond market, uh, high quality instruments. Uh, it, since 1978, the yield on um, core fixed income, the Bloomberg aggregate, which is a five to seven year maturity, has outpaced cash, and you mentioned the GICs and CDs, 90% uh, of the time, and importantly, by an average of 300 basis points per year on a three-year rolling basis. And where that starts to, in other words, um, if the stated yield is five, uh, uh, for uh, you, you could earn as much as 8% if prices move upward. Uh, and uh, the, the key timeline for being in core fixed income, the so-called Bloomberg aggregate as an example of core fixed income, uh, is somewhere around the peak of the policy rate the central bank sets, and typically around four months uh, prior to the peak in that policy rate. Uh, we all think that we've already passed the peak point, but the point is <laughs> to be thinking about um, the possibility of bond prices moving up because central banks will be bringing the policy rates down. And so it would be a mistake, we think, to miss out. So one quick example, the Bloomberg aggregate is yielding today uh, four and three quarters percent. What if yields fall 
100 basis points over a three-year period, uh, six-year duration, as it's called, times that 100 basis point changes is a six-point price change. Take that as a given. That's simply the bond map. Six-point price change over three years. Divide that, of course, two points per year. Add that to today's yield, four and three quarters, and you get a total return of about 7%. And that's before any alpha, of course, the alpha, the the money, the excess return that a manager provides could be negative, but for large managers like PIMCO, it tends to be positive. So the total return prospect is for 7% plus type of returns over the next three years. But the final word is um, an investor would have to be patient uh, because no one really knows when that yield drop will occur. We don't know that it will occur, but with confidence in the central bank's ability to bring uh, price stability, uh, then uh, it's, the time is now. You would, uh, Tony, if Dave Popwich was here, he'd be all excited. He'd probably do a little happy dance right now because it's been a long time since Dave, our fixed income man on our team, has been able to say we can get 7 8% uh, pretty much uh, with a high conviction uh, than he had in, than over the last 15 years. So he's very excited about that. Rob, we've been we've been chatting about the fixed income world. We talked to, about, uh, about Canada, the areas of opportunity, the way that there's an, a good opportunity mm-hmm. to make some decent rates of return given today and where we are in the interest rate cycle. Um, but one thing I think Canadians do as investors is they're very domestic bias. Yep. So they'll buy GICs, of course, based on Canadian interest rates. When they go into the bond market, they're generally buying bonds in Canada or bond funds or ETFs in Canada for Canadian uh, bonds. And I think they're missing out. In fact, I know they're missing out on a huge opportunity around the world. Yeah. And so our, our guest has been patiently waiting for us to, to share his insight on this. We've got Tony Crescenza, Executive VP, Market Strategist, and Generalist Portfolio Manager with PIMCO. Tony I just teed up this whole piece on where the opportunities are. I believe it should be outside of Canada more than inside of Canada. We've been working together, uh, your firm and our firm, for a very long time. We've seen the great work that you guys have done. We've seen the, 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 the benefits of global diversification and fixed income. So let's get right to it. Where's the opportunities globally in the fixed income world? And why do you believe there's those opportunities there? First of all, um, there are a lot of complexities that make uh, this, the active management style the, the, the best choice probably for 2024 in our eyes. Uh, the complexities include geopolitics, which is affecting different regions in different ways, of course. The complexities also include uh, the rewiring of the global economy. Think of uh, supply chains, for example, and complexities related to uh, techn- technology. Think of AI as a disruptor, for example. And so um, when thinking about those um, complexities, one has to go global because it can affect um, these nations and sectors, uh, industries in so many different ways. Uh, we should also be thinking, uh, and more to your question, about the divergence in central bank uh, policies. Uh, central banks, some will move faster than others, and one will want to take advantage of that. So one idea we've had of late, for example, is to be uh, invested in Australian bonds to with certain uh, scaling, kept low, of course, because you want to be diversified. 
when thinking about global positioning. But um, similar to Canada, there's a stress, some stress there related to the household sector that probably does not exist in the United States where the household sector is in good shape, uh, creating these vulnerabilities that could push interest rates downward faster. So we'd want to uh, take advantage of that by having moving, let's say, in a U.S. Uh, dollar-based portfolio, uh, moving some money from uh, U.S. Treasuries into Australian government bonds because, it, again, the chances of a bigger drop there in yield might be greater uh, because you see resilience in the U.S. economy. And so that's one way to think about the developed markets is these uh, the divergences in central banks. And also there's the election in the United States this year and elsewhere, uh, including in the emerging markets, that will cause markets to move around a lot. So you really got to be on your toes. If I have one final reason to be on your toes this year, active, choose the active approach, uh, is to be thinking about uh, cross-market opportunities. It includes the, the global sphere and public versus private and that sort of thing. And it requires a global footprint. I, if I thought about my personal ability to navigate these markets, it would be rather low uh, because the complexities are quite great globally. But um, uh, if you choose uh, firms and individuals that you know, advisors that have strength in knowing uh, more about the global markets, you can help take advantage of these opportunities. And so um, the final word would be uh, regarding the emerging markets. Uh, there's, they haven't performed uh, as well of late, there's, but we see uh, clean balance sheets there in terms of positioning. Uh, money's been flowing out of that market, uh, yet the, the central banks there have been pretty orthodox with respect to fighting inflation. And on the way out, if the U.S. starts lowering its interest rate, uh, of course, it might negatively affect the dollar at some point, helping some of the emerging markets. Uh, and one way to invest there is through the currencies, since they're highly liquid and you don't get trapped in some of the uh, problems that go with the illiquidity in s some of those emerging markets. So lots of opportunities, lots of things to do because of uh, it's become a global bond market again. We didn't see that in the 2010s. Tony, when I when I sit down with our team here, we always look at the areas of opportunity, but also where the risks are. If you look around the world and you look at all the different nations with everything that's going on, I believe 50% of the world's population will be going through an election this year. That's one uh, risk on the table that I can identify as potentially short term. Um, but when you look at the risks around the world, where are they and what what should what should you do to mitigate those risks in a diversified bond portfolio? Well, you mentioned the election, so that's one uh, key uh, risk. Of course, there could be lots of disruptions. Uh, and, and being passive would be the wrong way to go. Being passive uh, after the U.S. election, for example, means being invested in sectors uh, that perhaps uh, won't fit the next regime, political regime, that will be in place for four years. So. So that's one important thing to, to be thinking about. But um, I think it just in general, uh, when we're thinking about um, the risks, uh, probably relates to central banks and whether they adhere to the lessons of history. So if we see a central bank moving too quickly, so we talked about Canada, for example, do seem to be reasons to be thinking about moving relatively soon. The same for the European Central Bank uh, and the uh, Federal Reserve, although in all those in each of those cases, we think that central banks probably move a little later than markets think, but not, not, not tremendously later. But if a central bank moves too quickly, 
it will uh, break um, the, it'll, it again turns back to the lessons of history, numerous uh, of them, especially in the United States in the 70s and even the late 60s, where the central banks start to cut rates uh, before the, the job was done. Now, one very important point, though, in terms of these risks, I think not in terms of the inflation objectives that the central banks have. So for the Fed, it's 2%. Uh, it, it may not achieve that uh, initially. It'll have it'll reach 2 point something rather than 2.0. Uh, it may achieve, though, and this is important for investors, price stability. It's a big difference from between that and 2%. Price stability was enough in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s to bring uh, investors pretty good returns in many assets. Price stability defined by Alan Greenspan, the former Fed chair, and, and Paul Volcker, the legendary Fed chair from the 70s and 80s, is where price changes cease to have impact on household and business decision-making. We may get to that point, and investors will say, well, I mean, we didn't get to 2.0, but it's hovering around 2 point something. Good enough, it's not gonna get worse. And if we get to that point, uh, then uh, investors will have a green light to drive asset prices higher. But again, find the, the risk is a central bank that it, uh, that uh, moves before price stability has been achieved would be the mistake uh, and something to guard against. So you want to watch, do, do be a good central bank watcher this year. I'm going to be a little bit unfair here, Tony. I'm going to give you less than a minute here to talk about the geopolitical risks that are out there and how it can swing not only the currency market, but also the fixed income market. What are your thoughts about how the impacts will be as this these geopolitical risks uh, carry forward uh, throughout the year. Okay, watch this minute very closely on the <laughs> clock. Um, first, first lesson for me, being a bit older than the average listener and viewers, uh, that um, an investor is um, not to to worry too much about it in the long run. Lots of examples: Cold War, the U.S. S and P 500 rose 11 and a half percent per year on average during that period. Inflation was four percent, so pretty good returns during that time, even since the tariffs uh, were imposed against China by the Trump administration, the U.S. stock markets up substantially uh, in that period, and tensions between the U.S. and China have gone up a lot. So what good did it do an investor to worry? So uh, yes, there are near-term potholes, but in the long run, so long as the pie, the global pie is growing, investor probably shouldn't worry all that much. But again, as we said earlier, be active about things and expect um, that you may have to make changes to your portfolio now and then. Rob, we have both have in our personal lives impacts because of Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go first? Tell us about your story and then I can kind of fill in my, my side of the story. Yeah, mine's been uh, quite recent. This is my father-in-law uh, struggling with this and it took almost a year to get diagnosed and finally diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, and it is um, in not the first stage, which is one of the misconceptions or what the stages actually mean. But uh, it's put a lot of stress on on my wife and, and their side of the family going forward on how they're gonna have to care for this. In my case, um, after a year of of Dr. Rosen and mm -hmm. trying to figure this out, my father has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and fairly recent. So it's it's new, it's fresh, it's raw. Um, and so this is timely uh, for two reasons. One, uh, there is a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions. Mm -hmm. And so let's clear that up. Not only for us, but there are so many people impacted uh, with this disease. Number two, 
There is a great session coming up on Saturday, January 27th. So I'm going to mention it a few times. I think people definitely need to attend. And joining us to give us their insight, uh, Megan Williams, communication specialist with Alzheimer's Calgary. Megan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much for sharing um, your stories. I think that uh, so much a part of raising awareness and reducing stigma around dementia and Alzheimer's is just having people uh, be willing to talk about it. So we really appreciate you sharing your personal perspective and having us on the show. So, so you you kind of got the tea up between Rob and myself. Rob's uh, father-in-law has had um, the diagnosis, took a year to get the, mm-hmm. the diagnosis, um, and he's further along in the impact of Alzheimer's. My father recently diagnosed, fairly new to the the, the impact of this. Um, but both Rob and I have a lot of misunderstanding or misconceptions. And we've been doing a lot of shows uh, with Alzheimer's. We've been doing a lot of work with you and your, 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 your society. Uh, walk us through some of the most common misconceptions that people have when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's. Okay, well, I think I'm going to start with the first one for both of you, that uh, Alzheimer's and dementia is hereditary. Uh, No, it is not only, we're seeing only around 5% of Alzheimer's is hereditary. So uh, if you um, have it in your family, uh, a lot of people are worried that that means that they're also going to uh, develop it. And that is just simply not the case. However, it's great uh, that you guys have been through this family experience and know some of the things to to look for, uh, be aware, and just have some of the early signs and symptoms on your radar. Megan, can you, and for the listener too, and and for myself, maybe just the terms Alzheimer's and dementia, can you differentiate between the two for us? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And there is a lot, we hear this all the time. What is the difference between the two? And the terms are used interchangeably. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. It just happens to be the most common type of dementia. Dementia is very complex. Uh, it is uh, can be made up of over a hundred different types of diseases of the brain. So that is why dementia, Alzheimer's, are complicated and difficult for people to understand because it it is it is complex for sure. Megan, I'll, I'll again a bit of my story here. Uh, when my father and I visited his neurologist, um, the sit down conversation and some of the testing that he was going through. At the end of the testing, uh, the neurologist uh, sat down. Both of us looked us at, at our in our eyes and said, "Okay, there is definitely some changes that are going to happen." And one of the things I want both of you to look into is the Alzheimer's Society of Calgary. I want you to look at their programs. I want you to look at what's available out there. Some things you'll, you'll like to be participate in, some things you, you may not, be, but, but actually start to investigate that. We've both had the opportunity to look at the website and see what all the programs and services that are available. Walk us through some of the key things that people who are early onset dementia and people who are, are are further along in that in that journey where are the what are the some of the key things that Alzheimer's Calgary can can provide as support and services sure well i'm i'm so happy that your uh, physician your neurologist uh, recommended that that you reach out to us uh, we provide 
like you said, a variety of services. I'm going to start number one with our dementia support navigators. Our dementia support navigators is our team of social workers, um, and they are there for you to help you through no matter where you are in the dementia journey. Even if you suspect that someone in your family uh, has dementia and you might want to have that conversation with your doctor, because even knowing the right questions to ask, even you know having the confidence to go in there and be prepared and have that very difficult conversation can be hard. So support navigators can help you at that point. Support navigators can help you once you have got the diagnosis. So helping you kind of know some of the things to expect and some of the strategies that you might put in place to deal with it. Support navigators can also help you. We get calls every day from people who are well down the path of diagnosis and really struggling with uh, decisions around what to do with their loved one living with dementia, um, you know, their fellow family members. How do they make decisions together about like a long-term medical plan, a long-term care plan? Um, it's very difficult and very stressful for families. So our support navigators can help you with that. The second component of our work really centers around education, and we have some great uh, learning opportunities uh, for all Calgarians to engage in. Oh, and before I go any further, I'll add all of our services are free. Um, so we have care partner strategies. We have workshops on grief. So coping with some of the emotions and the grief that comes with once you have a diagnosis. We have engaging activities for care partners chat with an expert. And as you mentioned at the start of our show, two times a year, we do our big talking about dementia event where we bring in uh, physicians who are specialists in the area and we just uh, let them have a chat uh, with, a, with a local journalist and they talk about all kinds of questions that we hear uh, in the community around dementia. Now that's uh, a good tee up, uh, Rob, I think. Let's pause before we go and and go right into that that event because I think it's important that people get all the information mm -hmm. they can, knowing that what what you've just heard from Megan about about the different support navigators, how challenging is it for your family to get individuals who are not part of the family involved with your father-in-law? Because I'll, I'll tell you to be put everything on the table. It's challenging to actually get my father to actually talk to somebody outside of his physician and myself, it is painfully hard. The bigger one for us is support for my mother-in-law too, right? That's a big one Yeah, too. So yeah, talking point is the biggest one, starting the conversation. Starting the conversation. So this is, I think, uh, that's why I'm teeing this up because um, this event that's gonna be happening is, is a spot where not only do you get to hear uh, from a, an expert in the area, but you know you're just around the community mm -hmm. when you're just in that room. There are so many people that are experiencing it, are part of the same journey you're on. And so now you're building that community and you've got an organization who's got a depth of understanding. So this is an event that I think people need to attend. So Megan, why don't we go through the entire event, when, where, and some of the, the key points that people are going to take away from this event. Yeah, sure. So it's happening um, Saturday, January 27th at the Delta South, uh, 10 till 11.30, doors open at 9.30. Um, and we'll just be having a chat uh, with uh, an expert in the field, Dr. Hogan. He's a well-known uh, dementia researcher um, and has really kind of dedicated his life to 
to studying and helping to raise awareness around dementia. So we just we just feel very lucky to have him at the event as an advocate and a spokesperson. And he's also really interesting to listen to. I always learn something new every time I hear Dr. Hogan talk. Um, so we, we look forward to having him. And he'll be joined by uh, Christina Franju. She's a journalist. And so they do any kind of a fireside chat format. So Christina asks Dr. Hogan some questions. So it's very low key. It's very approachable. Um, and then at the end of their chat, uh, we just open up the floor and people have the opportunity to ask questions. Huge opportunity. If you want to be part of that, make sure you register because they are going to fill up that room pretty quick. Megan, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you both so much for having me and uh, really helping to raise awareness, reduce stigma and know that, uh, you know, I'd like to also just add, you know, there are often many, many good years post-diagnosis. Um, you know, people can still live really, really well post-diagnosis. So, um, you know, uh, please don't don't hesitate to give us a call if if you guys are still if your your families are still struggling or need support. Thank you so much, Thanks, Megan. Rob. One percent tax per month on your tax-free savings account hmm. possible. Doesn't sound like a good deal, does it? It doesn't sound like a good deal. And I think this is something that Canadians need to be aware of, especially this time of the year. People start talking about making contributions, putting it in their TFSA. They, they go through the process. You want to be topped up. You want to take advantage of that tax-free savings opportunity going forward. But there's a hitch. How does the CRA tax you 1% per month on your TFSA? How is that possible when it's a tax-free savings account? Well, if you go over, if you don't obey the rules of the contribution limit, which currently this year is $7,000, but how do you find your actual contribution limit if you don't feel or you feel like you may go over? And I think that we've experienced that with the team personally, with a couple examples. Yep. And it's, it's, it's an interesting one and it's not one that you want to fight. I've seen that. It's so, not one that you want to fight. So check this out. The government of Canada has received over $132 million in penalties for over contribution in 2022 alone. <laughs> okay. I can't wait to hear the 2023 numbers of how much tax was paid from a tax-free savings account because of over-contribution. And I think this is a key thing that people need to understand. First of all, how the heck does it happen that someone can over-contribute to a tax-free savings account? So I think this is the first piece is, is misinformation. There is two sets of, of data happening here. And um, e, e, the other piece is, is people can have multiple TFSAs. The average Canadian who has a tax-free savings account actually has 1.5 tax-free savings account, which means let's call it two. They have two accounts, probably two different institutions, and now they're responsible. I think that's the word. Who is responsible for keeping track of your own contribution limit and where you're at? And I think one of the misconceptions, the big one is, well, CRAs and just to keep track of it for me. So here's what Rob and I did before the show. Rob and I went on, signed on, well, I signed on to my CRA account. 
And I said, Rob, let's take a look at how much TFSA contribution room I have. Keep in mind, I have maxed my maximized my TFSA contributions up until the end of 2023, according to what I saw online. And you were right beside me, and I showed it to you, Rob. <laughs> it says I oh I can put in thirteen thousand five hundred dollars in my tax-free savings account. Hmm. Interesting. Now let's just assume I didn't know I maximized, or I didn't remember I made my last year's contribution, or I didn't have it at my fingertips because I showed you I made that contribution as yep. well. Well, then I would have just followed what it says on the CRA website, put thirteen thousand five hundred. I would have been over-contributed by $6,500, I'd be penalized 1% per month on that over-contribution. Do you want to know what that looks like if you didn't see it for 20 months or didn't notice that for 20 months? Go for it. $1,300. I'd end up paying in taxes $1,300 for something I thought I was able to do, no problem. (laughs) Okay, so what's the lesson? At the end of the day, who's responsible and accountable for knowing the contributions you've put in your in your TFSAs? It's the individual. It is. And, and this is the joke I had this morning. CRA is an agency. My service is my service. So it's giving me a porthole of information. But if that information is not fully accurate, because a lot of financial institutions don't send this information on a timely basis, basis and that's what we found this morning yeah that's the misconception. yeah my information has not been updated with the cra mm-hmm. let's start there okay so you're now at the crossroads you're like okay it says thirteen thousand five hundred in your in your cra account Faisal. what's the next step that i should do once i've understood what the cra says i have room for so if you have a, an advisor right or or a group managing your money is to talk to them right? To say, hey, what is my history there? Making sure that you have all your TFSAs, if you do have multiple, and do a self-audit. I think the contribution audit is a very good idea every single year, just in case. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have one tax-free savings account with one institution, either you're doing it yourself or you have an advisor, it's pretty easy to go back over the years and see how much you've contributed year over year. You have multiple accounts at different institutions or different advisors at the same institution. Get ready to have an audit done by yourself. Yeah. So that's so check online with CRA first. Do a contribution audit to see how much you've put in. Once you've got that number, then then you've got enough information to say, okay, I can make my contribution. Let's give the added tidbit here. Uh, we can't go through this step by step because it's my service. <laughs> We're not IT specialists, Correct. but you can. There is a, uh, a porthole on CRA to look at when those transactions actually, hap- actually happen. Yep. And if you actually had contributions in 2023, that's be the first place I would start. Also speak to your accountant. Mm-hmm. Your accountant knows if you've made contributions because there are contribution receipts that have been Submit it. Mm-hmm. So there's another level to do your audit. Once you've done that, then you can make the contribution. So let's let's paint. Let's say Faisal wasn't smart enough to do a contribution audit, and he put in thirteen thousand five hundred dollars into his TFSAs in 2024. He's over contributed 
by 6,500 bucks, thinks about it halfway through the year or gets a notification from CRA saying Mm -hmm. you've over-contributed. Now what do you do? So if you're working with someone, it's a little bit easier that you can make a withdrawal. The CRA does have forms that can be filled out and this can be reversed, but it can take some time, but there is a system in place to get this reversed. So this is something that I think is important, which is why we're taking some time to talk about it, um, because this is the time of year that people actually rush to get their their contribution in. Mm-hmm. And rush is, is, we sent out an email to our clients about making a contribution to TFSA. The amount of responses we get back on oh. that email was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing we're keeping track of stuff for our clients. And we can see it very easily what's the, what's the last amount of contributions you've made throughout the year or previous years. Very easy for us to do. But that's where I think the impact is. So keeping track, working with the team, making sure you get the tax advice as well along the way, some great tidbits and pieces of advice uh, from, from you, Rob. Thank you so much. We do have a seminar coming up on uh, January 23rd. We're going to talk about transitioning to or living in retirement. We're going to talk about tax. Mm-hmm how not to overpay in tax, how to make sure that you have income for the rest of your life, no matter what stage in retirement that you're at. When is that? Next one will be Tuesday, January 23rd. This will be 7 p.m. in person at the Country Hills Golf Course. You do have to register. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That seminar is almost packed, full, done. Like you won't be able. So if you're deciding to go register right away uh, and so you don't get put on a waiting list or won't be denied access because we're just packed. It's going to be a great one. On behalf of Rob Gary, myself, and all of us at the Popwitch Carmelli Advisory Group team, thank you for joining us on More Than Money and QR Calgary. We will see you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.